everyone, I'm Kyle Dyer, and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, August 11th. Technically, the start of football season with the Broncos' first preseason game. We are all hoping for a better showing this year with our new coach, Sean Payton. There are other things to discuss, though, aside from the team's chances this season. And for that, we have with us Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, along with Eric Sonderman, columnist for Colorado Politics and the Colorado Springs and Denver Gazettes, Chris Rourke, the managing editor of Denver Business Journal, and Tyrone Glover, criminal defense and civil rights attorney here in Denver. Since our show last week, a lot has unfolded regarding the happenings at Denver's McAuliffe International School. Last month, the principal was fired. This week, the interim principal was put on paid leave. Uh, amidst news of the use of a seclusion room at the school where students with behavioral issues were placed during difficult situations as a way to uh, de-escalate that behavior, Patty. Well, this is a very tough story to figure out exactly what's happening. First of all, the DPS, some of the board members, are taking the lead in exposing what they say they found at McAuliffe. We have to remember that this is the DPS board that had their own closed-door five-hour meeting, so it's kind of hard to hear anything they're saying with, without taking it with a grain of salt. And later in the week, you've seen the other side is coming forward. David Lane is the attorney for the deposed principal, Kurt Dennis, and he is coming up with fairly compelling arguments for what the DPS had allowed, how the DPS didn't really say how you were supposed to use these rooms, how these rooms are legal if they're used the correct way, but in some cases there might have been problems. So you're hearing that side. You're hearing from parents who actually said they liked the de-escalation room. One mother whose son is white who was in that room and said it really saved her son. But you have very compelling stories on the other side from people who say, minorities were in there more than anyone else, and that there was a lock on the door. We'll find out plenty because it's under police investigation now. Mm -hmm. Eric. I think the bigger issue is uh, twofold. One is school year is, what, a week or two away. The principal is no longer there. The interim principal is on administrative leave and no longer there. I think they brought somebody in maybe from Northfield, I think I read. Mm -hmm. but. Uh, you know, this is one of the flagship schools. It doesn't matter if it's a flagship school or not. All DPS schools should have good leadership. But, you know, McAuliffe has a very active parent body, student body, et cetera, and they're going to demand something. Uh, there is an unbecoming glee on the part of Ante Anderson and a few other people on that board that they found something on Kurt Dennis. Let's not forget the reason Kurt Dennis was fired in the first place was he was a whistleblower and an appropriate whistleblower. The facts will ultimately come out, but if you act, ask me based on track record, do I want to bet on Alex Marrero and team or do I want to bet on Kurt Dennis and team? My money is still with Kurt Dennis. Okay. There is a state representative, uh, Regina English from Colorado Springs, who is now wanting a look into every school in Colorado, see if these rooms exist in every school. Yeah, I have talked to some education experts, and they don't have a problem with de-escalation rooms. In fact, they say that really they are very helpful in a lot of disciplinary situations. And you come down to anything can be used in a wrong way. So they have to be, you know, th this tactic has to be used in a proper way. I think the, the troublesome thing with this whole situation is that politics, the politics surrounding this board, makes it impossible to really know what's going on in that school. And the fact that you do have this case that Patty and Eric talked about makes it highly suspect that the board is coming out and, oh, by the way, 
involving themselves in operations, not sticking to what their job is, which is dictating policy, it's very troublesome. I think when you look at the business side of this, and I don't know that anybody's looked at the business side of the drama that's gone on for the last two years, it's got to be hurting the district. I mean, recruitment has to be very difficult for teachers that don't feel like they can be safe in the school. And then think about the parents sending their kids to school. I, I'm curious about how enrollment is. So really from a business standpoint, there is an impact and test scores are coming out next week. So we'll really see if the focus of DPS is really in the right place. As a civil rights attorney, what are your thoughts on how these kids are being secluded or de-escalated or however you want to put a term for this room? I think the concept and likely the original intent of these rooms was probably fine. My understanding is they're supposed to be open the child can voluntarily go to the room and they are accompanied by an adult. So essentially a time in. You're escalated, you're dysregulated, you have a place you can go, you're away from all of the things that are dysregulating you and you have a responsible adult, an educator, someone who is trained with how to deescalate you there with you and you can leave whenever you want because it's voluntary. But what I understand and what I think they're investigating and what's going to come out is that they were sending kids there by themselves. They were locking them in there. And despite them, mostly children of color, screaming and crying and wanting to get out, they kept them in there. That sounds a whole lot like a jail cell. And when we put kids in cages, we know how that ends up. This just reinforces the school to prison pipeline and it's very short-sighted if we think that we're gonna get out of this without some really strict, narrow guidelines about how these types of rooms are to be used. Yeah. Well, I wanted to respond to one thing Chris said, which is East High used to have such a long wait list for choice. It doesn't this year, mm -hmm. which talks about what happened last March. McAuliffe also used to have a big wait list. There's no wait list this year. So we are seeing, even though school enrollment is dropping, we're also seeing that the pro there are problems. You know, the one thing that I want to ask you, Tyrone, is what do you do with a child that's out of control? I mean, what is a safe way to deal with a child that, that really can either be considered dangerous or out of control emotionally? I'm not suggesting that you lock them in there and walk away, but there's got to be a way of giving a child a, a safe space to calm down, especially if a teacher feels threatened or other students feel threatened. Exactly. I think you bring them into the fold, which is what the intent of these rooms originally was, was to have an adult accompany a child to a room, stay there with them, and allow them to process whatever it is that's dysregulating them. Mm -hmm. These kids have so much trauma, and they show up to school oftentimes. This is the only real structure that they have. These are the only real positive adults that they have that can really interact with them and have oftentimes their best interests at heart. They don't necessarily have it anywhere else in their life. And so getting some one-on-one -on -one time, getting some time away from the hustle and bustle of what is oftentimes a very dysregulated classroom mm -hmm. to interact with that adult, that's my understanding of the intent of these types of rooms. But what they've transformed into, and I think we'll find out more about that, is a play to do the opposite, to push these kids to the margin, to actually seclude them, which is why I think they're calling them seclusion rooms. Mm -hmm. A time-in room and sort of doing this time-in sort of helping the kid process whatever I think is, you know, in all intents and purposes, great. But that's not what we're seeing and that's not what we're hearing about. During an all-day meeting last weekend, Colorado GOP members rejected a rule change that Eric would have led the way to closing the GOP primary to those unaffiliated voters in Colorado, which makes up 47% of the electorate here in Colorado. Well, whatever else you want to say about Dave Williams, and Lord knows around this table we've said plenty,
it also appears he's all bark and no bite. I mean, if you're going to propose something as outlandish as what he proposed, that if you don't show up for a meeting, you know, uh, rules change so that if you don't show up for a meeting, uh, your absence counts as a yes vote, you would think he would at least have counted noses or something to get that through. I have my own theory here, which is, you know, there was this famous book a decade to two decades ago, the blueprint about how Democrats have taken over Colorado. I actually think at this point in time, the Ted Trimpas, the Mark Gruskins, the Al Yates, the brain power behind this Democratic run of Colorado, I think they have Dave, Dave Williams on their payroll. Um, he can't meet his own payroll. There is now a GoFundMe page just to get Dave some money because no Republican donors are giving him a nickel. So I think the Democrats have stepped into this uh, breach. And by all accounts, they must be funding Dave Williams because Lord knows he's out there doing their bidding. Chris, this was an all-day thing on Saturday, too. All-day thing. And just overall, from a business standpoint, again, considering Dave Williams, the CEO of the party, of the company, horrific business savvy in any way. He has not evaluated his product in light of the audience he's trying to sell it to, first of all. You have this party that thinks that only 3,000 people should pick the candidate that's going to represent almost a million registered Republican voters. And then you are telling almost 2 million unaffiliated voters, we don't want feedback on our product from you, even though we want you to buy it. How, are, how, do, how do you justify that? On top of the fact that the political report I just saw has taken Congressional District 3 out of the leans Republican category to toss up. Ooh. So one wonders if the Republican Party is focused on the wrong thing. Hmm. Okay. We've heard the business side. What about the legal side? I don't want to read the tea leaves on what's going to happen with the lawsuit. I will say it seems to be uh, better pled. Uh, it seems to be a more sophisticated legal strategy. Um, and I think now, given what just happened, that there's going to be the appetite and the motivation to really lean into the lawsuit. So I'm definitely going to be watching that, given the... Uh, sort of lack of the Republican Party these days to coalesce around uh, a, a winning strategy. This and was I, the I'm going to stop acting like I'm surprised at that every time I'm on here because it seems like it's business as usual. These and, days. and this was a lawsuit that was filed last week against Jenna Griswold saying it's, you know, illegal to have, you know, non-affiliated voters be able to vote in presidential primaries. Right, going against 108, which Coloradans voted for in 2016, and it was filed by John Eastman, unindicted co-conspirator number two for Donald Trump and Randy Corcoran. So let's, they've talked about the business and legal side. Let's talk about the practical side. This makes the Republican part, this makes Dan Mays, who ran, you know, as the Republican candidate in 2010, look like a genius. You know, that's when Tom Tancredo ran as an independent and really came fairly close to Hickenlooper when he was elected governor. You can't imagine who the Republicans are going to be able to put up with how, whatever they do with the primary. When you have almost 50% of the voters in the state unaffiliated, want to make their own decision about who the candidates are that they might have the chance to vote for, and they're paying for these primaries, let's make sure that they have a chance to actually put some competent people on the ballot. Mm -hmm. it's, it, every week it seems like there's a different fold or chapter. And, yeah. All right. Earlier this week, 
on the day a new law was supposed to take effect, which called for limiting firearms purchases to those 21 years old and over, a federal judge said, wait a minute, and granted the call to block this new Colorado law, Chris. Yeah, I, I mean, in looking at this situation, I asked myself three questions. Was the law constitutional? Is the law constitutional? Does it impact gun violence if, you know, if it's implemented? And how do you define adulthood? You know, as far as, as far as constitutionality, there's a federal judge in Virginia that uh, ruled on a similar law and said it was unconstitutional. So that is in question. Um, will it impact gun violence? I don't know. Are we classifying 18-year-olds as a category of our population that is more violent than the rest of the population? Are we unfairly denying them the right to own a gun? Um, how do we define adulthood? Is it fair to ask an 18-year-old to go define, to defend the country and then tell them, no, you can't defend yourself here at home by owning a firearm. There are also rule implications. You know, firearms are used frequently by those under the age of 21 in your rural communities. So those are the questions that I'm asking myself. Okay, and Tyrone, as an attorney, where is this going to go? Because it did pass the legislature. That was one of the early uh, bills to pass regarding the gun violence prevention. And now, on the day it's supposed to take effect, nope, nope, maybe not, because of all the arguments that Chris just made. Right, and the, the key word there is maybe not. This is a preliminary injunction. There's okay. still a lot of game left. Though okay. Chief Judge Bremer did signal in his order, which I have here, um, that he does think that their arguments have merit and a likelihood of success. We spoke a lot about the Supreme Court decisions the last time that I was on, and this is an example that thousands of miles away on the Hill in the Supreme Court, um, you know, the decisions they're making there are coming to bear right here in Colorado. So there's a lot of game left. Um, there's going to be a determination whether between 18 and just shy of 21, you are a person for purposes of being able to possess a firearm. But I would remind everyone here today that we limit you know, folks who've been uh, convicted of felonies, people with mental health histories from f purchasing firearms, there is precedent for not allowing, quote, people uh, to have this right in the interest of public safety, and hopefully that's where it comes out. Okay. Patty? Well, this is another one where you want to go with the, what people are thinking, and I think people are confused. You're, look at the hor horrific events we've had here in Colorado, starting with Columbine, and would this rule this law have prevented the guns from going out? Probably not, but everyone wants something to be put in place until we can get to the bedrock issues, which is what, are cre what is creating the motives behind these people who go out and cre create mass violence or just happen to use a gun when they're driving alongside someone on the highway and don't like them. Um, I can't even guess where we'll go legally, but Let's remember, people who are under 21 can't smoke cigarettes or buy cigarettes either. So there are plenty of limitations that have already been put on those who can go serve their country. Ultimately, I mean, I agree with Tyrone here. This emanates from the Broome decision of the Supreme Court uh, a number of years ago, not that many years ago. Uh, states like Colorado, which are now very blue states, you can pass all kinds of gun laws and all kinds of gun regulations can the hindrance is not political the hindrance is judicial and can you get them through judicial inspection and judicial scrutiny and at least early indication yes there's lots of game to be played on this issue but the early indication is no the court is going to be the barrier to getting this done hmm. okay but what about 
this definition of adulthood. At 16, you can drive a car. At 18, you're voting. So why is 21 the magic mark? Especially for a gun. And uh, as I said, it's ambiguous. You, you're, you're absolutely right, Chris. There's 16, there's 18. I would suggest, you know, maybe guns should follow what we prescribe for alcohol, for marijuana, et cetera. And, uh, you know, maybe you can wait. Maybe the, uh, if you're gonna err, err, err on the side of caution. I think my understanding of this law is you would still be able to possess a gun. That would not necessarily be illegal. It's the ability to walk into um, a firearms dealer and purchase a gun. So if we think about some of our most horrific shootings that have occurred with folks who would have been in that age range, oftentimes it's their parents' gun or it's something that was gifted to them or they inherited. So this law even has uh, limitations um, that wouldn't necessarily have prevented a number of those. It's literally just the purchase of the firearm. To be continued, that is for sure. Thank you. Any day now, the Denver mayor's office is expected to reveal the locations of the homeless micro-communities that Mike Johnson has been pushing for since his campaign really started going. And this week, Tyrone, two city council members proposed using city dollars to fund public restrooms and laundry service and showers at some of the um, encampments right now. I've really enjoyed the level of sophistication and debate around how to actually get in there and roll our sleeves up and, and solve this. And I think that we're starting to see the, how everything really fits together as it relates to not only crime and the uh, cost of living and uh, unhoused folks as well. And you know, things like sanitation, mental health services, ADA support, I think are going to be crucial uh, to these sites. What I'm really uh, focused on and am interested to see is, for me, this is really going to be kind of the NIMBY test, right? Like, I think we all want to see this uh, issue solved or at least some significant progress towards it being solved and uh, Mayor Johnson wanting to see something by the end of this year. But when it's announced where these sites are going to be and what they're going to look like, you know, how many of the not-in-my-backyard folks are going to come uh, and, and really start making a fuss. So um, next week could have the potential to be explosive, um, and I'm keeping my eyes out. Well, we did hear some of that because at a meeting on Wednesday, Amanda Sawyer, city council person, said, I've heard that this, this, this in my district, and I'm not sure about these locations. When is someone going to come talk to me? I don't know if this is going to work. Well, let's hope they talk to her before they announce them. They've said there will be no re rezoning needed, so that's one thing, that the zoning should allow for it. We just drove up to the studio, and you saw where they did the sweep last Friday, 22nd and Stout. Definitely the neighborhood looks better. You see some other little encampments have come up, but Mike Johnston did a hard thing when he said, I'm going to sweep that, because he certainly um, offended a lot of people who are on the no-sweep system, but I think they did as humane a sweep as they could. It was at the same time they were rolling out trash services, they're bringing in the mobile porta-potties, and he went and visited the encampments before they swept. He sent Ian Tafoya Thomas, a Thomas Tafoya out there to help people figure out alternatives because they don't have a place to put them yet. So he's walking the walk, and so the NIMBY people are gonna have a little less room to argue with him because he's gone on the hard direction just on the sweeps. Uh, under the heading of shameless self-promotion, my column coming up this week, weekend and, and early next week uh, is on this subject and it's somewhat of a deep dive. I started that column and I really believe it applies to all of us around this table and anyone who's opining on this issue. 
with we all ought to start our comments with I don't know or I'm not sure. This homelessness writ large is as intractable an issue as our society has encountered a while. I don't think anyone has a clear idea how to fix it. Mike Johnston was elected with a platform and a plan, and Lord knows he deserves the opportunity, and his team deserves the opportunity to give it a go and put that plan in place. Am I optimistic that he's going to meet that marker of eliminating homelessness or in, in four years? No, I am not optimistic, and I'd probably cover the bet, but they deserve the chance. And that said, just one other footnote, Kyle, which is, you know, Mike's only been in office now three weeks or some number like that, but it is time, even though homelessness is issue number one in Denver, it doesn't mean it's issue number only. And it is time that the mayor also start showing some engagement with other issues beyond just homelessness. And there are other issues. Chris. Yeah, appointments. It would be good to see him appointing some of his staff, especially in the planning department. But to Eric's point, I'll start out with I don't know, because, you know, we have two city council people who want to provide, you know, sanitation, the showers, things like that. And, and part of me says, man, it would be really great to, ha to provide people with a place to go to the bathroom because I'm tired of walking down the sidewalk and seeing what I see on the sidewalk. It's not safe. It's not a part of public safety it's, or, you know, health, public health. The other side of me says, though, if you provide it, there sets an expectation and it will attract more. So I'll be the first one to say, I don't know. Uh, I'd like to see something tried to, I, I like the fact that he did the sweep and, and for sanitation reasons, for public health reasons, it does look better. Patty's right. But at the end of the day, I don't know what's going to be the best solution. You're right. You're right about the I don't know thing, Eric. Yeah, it's a hard one to figure out. Okay. Uh, the city has set up a website where you can keep tabs on how the administration is doing to meeting that end of your goal of housing 1,000 people. If you want to check it out, it's at denvergov.org slash house1000. So check it out, and they keep putting updates as to what they're doing. So that's a good resource for everybody. Now is the time to go through some of the highs and lows of the week here in Colorado or anywhere else. Patty, let's start with something that really irked you this week. Well, it's sad for all of us. Mother Nature has not been kind to Colorado this year. We've got West Nile, mm. and now we have the earworms eating our sweet corn. I know. A huge crop. I mean, a huge percentage of the so crop. So tough for the farmers, the tough for the fans. Mm. Good, I guess, for the earworms. Mm. Okay. I'm going to go far away from Colorado, uh, go to Russia. Putin and his hacks have now added 19 years to the sentence of the leading dissident there, Alexei Navalny, on completely trumped-up charges. He was serving nine years. Uh, they've now added 19 years to that, all for trying to bring some political reform to a country desperately needing it. Apparently the Emmy Awards are moving to January because of the actors and writers strike going on in Hollywood. Will anybody mind? I'm not really sure. Mm -hmm. Tyrone. And this one's a bit of a mixed bag, but the censure of the former uh, Supreme Court, uh, Colorado Supreme Court Justice Coates um, with the new uh, disciplinary commission uh, that was convened as a result of just, you know, I think the investigation and the high-profile press around some of the misgivings in our judiciary uh, has resulted in that censure. Um, so it's, you know, 
a good thing for public accountability for the judiciary, um, but you know, not necessarily a, a good thing for the profession. Okay. All right. Let's end on something positive. Patty. Dazzle. Great jazz club, 25 years plus. Moved to its new place last weekend. It's, it's going to have an Elch Pultepec Lounge. It's just a great testament to the city's musicians and music fans. Good. I'm glad it's ready to open. Good. Oh, it's open. Okay, it's open. I'm glad. I'm going. All right. The president of this station, PBS 12, Kristen Blessman, who is getting married Friday evening, just as this show airs, and her soon-to-be husband, Brad Apple, two wonderful people, and wishing them much happiness. Absolutely. It's wonderful. That is a good thing. Mine is Hank the Tank, which is actually Henrietta the Tank. <laughs> she is a 400-pound bear that is responsible for more than 20 home invasions. She came from California to the Bear Sanctuary in Colorado. Um, there is a dark side of, you know, bears breaking into homes. I lived in bear country for 17 years, and it's a real thing. It can be a scary thing, and it's difficult to rehab a bear. Usually they're euthanized. But Henrietta has found a new home in Colorado. But you can't get rid of the name, Hank the Tank. No, you can't. <laughs> and another California transplant. <laughs> I know! <laughs> they keep coming. All right, Tyrone. Uh, Blair Caldwell African American Research Library reopened. Uh, celebration uh, tomorrow. Hope to see everyone there. Uh, so just really excited about that. It really is a unique uh, library and institution to Colorado and Denver. So excited that it's back online. Yeah, I am too. My positive is football season is starting and there are all, you know, questions about whether it will be great this year with the new coach and all that. But what I witnessed this week, I went to training camp one morning with my daughter. And afterwards, all the players come over to the side and talk to all the kids and do autographs. They stood there for 30 minutes easily, and the players were just as joyful for that interaction as the fans were. So it was really, really awesome to see. And I picked certain numbers. I'm like, oh, I'm rooting for them. I'm rooting for them because they were just so great with the kids. I thought it was wonderful. So here's hoping to, that those nice guys do well this season. All right, thanks to our fabulous panel, and thanks to you for watching at home on your device or those of you who are listening to our podcast. I will be out of town next week moving my youngest to college, but we'll, you'll be in great hands with Krista Kay for moderating. So I'll see you in two weeks here on PBS 12. <laughs>